Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello and welcome. My name is Jacob Steele, the events manager for Banyan Books. Today, we are delighted to be hosting Mark Nepo in conversation with Joel Fultinos about Mark Nepo's new book, Falling Down and Getting Up, Discovering Your Inner Resilience and Strength. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that although we have participants joining us from around the world, the physical location of Banyan Books is on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. If you enjoy today's event, we invite you to, do- to donate to Banyan Books to help support these programs to be free and accessible for all. There's a PayPal donation link in the video description below. Um, Mark Nepo and Joel Fotinos welcome your questions. Uh, so at any point throughout the event, please feel free to type them into the chat box. And now for introductions. Mark Nepo is a poet and philosopher who has taught in the fields of poetry and spirituality for over 50 years. With over a million copies sold, Mark Nepo has moved and inspired readers and seekers all over the world with his number one New York Times bestseller, The Book of Awakening. Mark Nepo has published 25 books and recorded over a dozen audio projects, and his books have been translated into more than 20 languages. In 2016, he was named by Watkins Mind, Body, Spirit as one of the 100 most spiritually influential living people and was also chosen as one of Owen's Super Soul 100. Mark devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and the life of relationship. You can find him at marknepo.com. Mark's new book, I will bring up the cover here. Mark's Nepo's uh, new, new book, uh, Falling Down and Getting Up, Discovering Your Inner Resilience and Strength. The book is an invitation to view adversity from a new perspective. In this gentle, insightful guide, Mark helps readers navigate the challenges of life by transforming their experience into a chance for deepening and renewal. Mark will be uh, joined today in conversation with Joel Fotinos. Joel Fotinos is the founder, vice president, and editorial director of St. Martin's Essentials, the successful body, mind, spirit imprint of the St. Martin's Publishing Group. Uh, prior to that, Joel was a vice president and publisher of the Tarcher Perigee imprint at Penguin Random House and a marketing manager at the San Francisco office of HarperCollins. 
He is the author of several books, including The Prosperity Principles, which have been published in more than 14 languages. He is a recipient of Science of Mind Magazine's Spiritual Hero of the Year Award. And he is at joelfotinos.com. And now, without further ado, Banyan audience, please welcome Mark Nebo and Joel Fotinos. Thank you, Jacob. Hey, Mark. Hey. There we go. What a fun uh, uh, time to be celebrating your brand new book. Um, I have the galley here, falling down and getting up. Yeah, it's just exciting. And thanks to everyone for taking time to be with us. You know, the first thing, Joel, that I want to acknowledge, it might not be obvious to everyone, but that is our uh, creative relationship and friendship because Joel is my publisher and editor. And um, and I just wanted to start because of this book and especially this book really came because of our conversations. And Joel, you remember well, you kept asking me about my teaching and what what is it that happens there and what what is it like? And then you gave this amazing invitation and said, well, if someone couldn't be in those circles, what kind of book would be closest to that experience? Well, my God, what an invitation. <laughs> and here we are a year and a half later with a book. <laughs> and my goodness, what a book, too. It's uh, fantastic. Uh, I, I would just say also at the beginning, for those of you who are watching this, um, I'm, I'm here for you. So if you have questions, please put them in. And I, I'm going to try to ask, uh, ask Mark as many of the questions um, as we can get to today. And the other thing I would just say at the beginning for everyone listening here, because I know a lot of you are seeing Mark for the first time, is I have published hundreds and hundreds of people over the years. Mark is at the very top. Mark is exactly who he is in person as he is in these pages and in front of audiences. He is just, he lives this message so fully. So Mark, I just appreciate you so much. Oh, and I love how much of you you put in this book. It's a very personal book. Oh, thank you, Joel. Well, why don't we start with some questions? Um, and the best question to start with is, of course, the title. Where, where did you get the title? What does it mean? How does a caterpillar fit into this? <laughs> so the title, Falling Down and Getting Up, and it really comes that in medieval monks, when asked how they practice their faith, would say by falling down and getting up. And I just love that. I resonate with that because I fall down and get up a lot. <laughs> and interestingly, um, over my life, that kind of rhythm of living I've have found echoed in other places. So, you know, once learning of that, it brought me all the way back to, as many of you know, uh, from my other work, you know, in my thirties, I almost died from a rare form of lymphoma. And one of my surgeries, I had a rib removed in my back and I, I woke up in a room, of course, and there was this gentle, gruff nurse leaning over me saying, uh, get up, we're going to walk. I thought, we're going to walk? 
I don't know about you. <laughs> um, and then as I really struggled to get out of bed and put my feet on the hospital floor, she said, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, which I remembered all these years later, that's falling down and getting up. And then I stumbled onto, and this is the caterpillar image in the Hindu Upanishads, which are the anonymous holy texts in the Hindu tradition. There is a metaphor that says spiritual growth is like a caterpillar. It bunches up and then it moves forward. And then in order to go, it bunches up, which brings it back a little bit, and then it moves forward. And so this also is falling down and getting up. And, and then I stumbled that there's a onto a Japanese proverb that says, fall down seven, get up eight. And so when we back up, and no one, no one signs up to fall down. No one says, oh, yeah, thank you, I'll fall down. No. <laughs> but like gravity, we cannot live and be exempt from falling down. And, and so when we back up enough over a lifetime, the rhythm of falling down and getting up actually becomes a dance. And so the question is not to avoid falling down, but how do we love each other into the dance of falling down and getting up? So let's unpack the idea though of falling down a little bit more. When you say falling down, what kind of things, how, how might that look in people's lives? Yeah, so we start just with physically falling down. I go to take the garbage out and trip. <laughs> but, but then we move to emotion, mental, emotional, and spiritual falling down, where life, life st we stumble where, in where we think we're going. And all of a sudden we have teachers, you know, in, in the Hindu tradition also, there is the term Upa Guru, which means the teacher that is next to you at this moment. And of course, there's always a teacher next to us at this moment. And so I love also in that tradition that some folks that you've probably heard of Ganesh or Ganesha and Ganesh is in that tradition is the provider and remover of obstacles which means that obstacles are our teachers. So often when we fall down, when we find ourselves in a detour from where we think we're going physically, emotionally, spiritually, what's in the way is the way. What's in the way is our teacher. And then it might be hard for me to embrace that. So then I need to call you up as my friend and say, can you help me with this? Yeah, it's interesting. I told you that we've been using this in a group that I'm in. Um, and the falling down part is different for each one of us. Some have health challenges. Somebody's going through a divorce. Somebody's experiencing grief. Uh, somebody just lost their job. So it's um, amazing to me that the book can speak to all all of these different forms of falling down um, and in a way it's all the same motion right the same well it is the, the details are different in each of our lives but the fact that each of us will have to encounter this movement through life is both um uh remarkable difficult mysterious 
And, you know, and actually, and, and given your invitation about, uh, you know, I looked through all of my different teaching through the years and tried to pull out uh, what, are, what are the falling downs that most people bring to these circles that we don't answer, but we look at together and we keep each other company. You know, I often like to say, both with my writing and my teaching, what I, what I offer are examples, not instructions that all we can do is open this honest space together and compare what it is to be here because no one knows how to do this. And so one of the things, especially during the pandemic, is I, I received so many requests from folks. Could, could I open up a space where we can look at, at pain and fear and grief? And I, and I did, uh, and we had, and I consider those the deeper teachers and they now make up the center part of the, th the three parts of this book. Right. Right. That uh, actually, that was something I was going to talk about, which is um, that you actually, uh, I'm trying to look for it on my, my list of questions here. Um, well, we'll get to it. We'll come, we'll come yeah, back up sure. to it. Um, I, you know, this is a small thing, but at the beginning of the book right here, uh, at the very first of the chapters, you use a small quote here from Robert Mason, and I just would love for you to just tell us what this means to you. It says, we're with the push, we're not the push. Yes, and Robert is my oldest friend. He's a poet himself, and he often comes up with these, you know, all of a sudden, uh, which he totally doesn't realize he's saying, these amazing insights and i'm often saying to him line alert <laughs> wait a minute don't miss this you realize what you just said and and this was one of them where we're with the push we're not the push and that to me evokes the sense that we are the job of our will which has been so distorted in the modern western world is not to bend life to our needs not to conquer life, uh, not to impose our will uh, with what we want, but more in the ancient Taoist tradition, how do we align our will with the currents of life? We're with the push of the stream, if you will. You know, the Taoist sense uh, of things, and the Tao simply in, in ancient Chinese means the way. They didn't even try to define it. It's unnameable. We'll just call it the way. And and often the image conjured for the to to get a gestalt of of the Tao is it's the way a fish has to find the current in a river to swim with it. Unless you're a salmon, of course you swim against it. But there's always <laughs> there's always a rebellious fish. The contrarian. A contrarian, yes. And um, but most fish try to find the current. When you swim with the current, you not only have your own strength, but you have the strength of the river. And so the Tao is considered the invisible river of life. And so the the will, our individual will of our soul, like the fish in that stream. This, the soul is asked to align itself with the push of the river. We're not the push. We're, mm. we're not the river. We're a small fish in the river. 
And so the deep, and, and this gets back to falling down and getting up because one of the harsh teachers I have found in my life is that sooner or later, everyone who's alive, no matter what blessings you have or resources or support, everyone will at some point not get what they want. And I, I don't say that uh, to be pessimistic or a downer. It's just like describing an aspect of reality. And the, and that can be serious, you know, that's not, like I don't want my wife to die. That's, you know, but that's a little different than I'd like a new car, you know. Right. So, but when we don't get what we want and it jars us and breaks our self-reference, so always there are two aspects to falling down, to be to stumbling on what life puts in our way. One is the actual learning that comes from disappointment and loss and being thrown off course or what we think is on course. And now that our self-reference is broken, the deeper spiritual journey begins it's a relational journey between the living part and the living whole. And that's where we, we start to deepen to, and, and, and go on our, our way. And there's a great, and I use this, as you know, in, in the book, there was a, a Japanese samurai in the 1600s by the name of Masahide. And Masahide got, got tired of being a samurai. And at some point, he put down his sword, retired as a warrior, and went to study with the great poet Basho to apprentice to be a poet. I would have loved to interview that guy. Like, what <laughs> happened? Right? But his enduring haiku that he wrote on the other end of this journey holds the essence of what we're exploring here. He said, my barn having burned to the ground, I can see the moon more completely. Mm. My barn having burned to the ground, I can see the moon more completely. And so we can't minimize the loss of the barn burning down. That's real. We don't skip over it. We don't reframe it. Oh, it's insignificant. It is significant. And, oh my God, now that it's out of the way, I had no idea that the vastness before me um, I'm going to just weave in a couple questions here from people listening. Um, Christine says, I'm thinking on this note of personal challenges versus collective challenges. How uh, she said, well, she's asking about the collective uh, challenges. Well, one of the things, as I sense where that question is going, is you know, the collective challenges are often um, overwhelming. You know, how can I, just me, affect all of humanity? And of course, I don't know. I don't have answers. But I know my own experience to this is, and I think it's very relevant in our times right now, every particular gesture of kindness affects the whole. You know, if you, you know, in a physical body, in my body, if I have uh, one more healthy cell than toxic, I'm considered healthy. I'd like a lot more, 
But as long as I have one, I'm leaning toward health. Well, if we imagine humanity as a global body, every soul is a cell in that body. And so when we do our authentic inner work, we are helping the global body stay healthy. And that's not in place of doing things that in actually problem solving and contributing to helping each other. That's in addition to. So I, I think that, you know, the purpose of goodness is to be the one gesture that outlasts all the rest. And that keeps life going. And we don't know, you know, if, if you see someone in the parking lot where you buy your groceries fall down and you rush to help them, you don't know if that's the one gesture that keeps life going today. And so we have to do it anyway. That's beautiful. Um, let's see, here's a question. I'm not gonna pronounce everybody's names because I will we'll get them wrong. Uh, Mark, listening to you, I'm thinking about what we can do to help others when they fall down or should we always help, which ties into what you just said. How do we know what's best? Oh, well, Sabrina is the name. Yeah, th thanks for that, Sabrina. I think that's an ongoing, and, and, and I should say that every question, while there's no answer, it, every question opens up a practice. So we have to practice discerning to know what's needed in every situation. I, I would offer that for me, I've discovered over, over the years that often, so if you fall down in front of me and you can't breathe or you're bleeding or you need a drink of water, I can certainly help. But when we move inwardly and we inwardly fall down, I can't do that for you. And now we deepen into the real work of compassion. And the word compassion means literally being with. So how do, when I devote myself to being compassionate with you, that means I agree to feel your pain. That means we're on the journey together. I can't take it away from you. I can support you, but you have to do it um, yourself and I can provide tools or resources, but this opens up a deeper question. And that is not to presume we know what's good for someone else. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a committed lifelong teacher. And after all these years, I've had to accept that you can't change anyone. So what am I doing? <laughs> well, it's changed my understanding of what it is to be a teacher. I think now that being a teacher is to be like a greenhouse. Our job is to provide light and warmth and things will grow the way they are meant to grow, not the way I think you should grow, even in even meaning well. And the other aspect of this, which is so important is, and it's, it's our human nature, but we often love in the way we'd like to be loved. And we don't often ask what's really needed. So how I came to learn this was years ago in a former marriage, I had a father-in-law who was a farmer 
very taciturn New England farmer. And uh, he lived to be in his 80s. But in his late 70s, he, uh, his sister, who was also about the same age, she fell ill. And, you know, and this was toward the end of her life. And she was in a hospital. All of a sudden, this taciturn farmer was telling everybody we couldn't leave her alone for one minute of the day. We needed to sign up and take turns being with her round the clock. And while that was very loving, I immediately understood that he was telling me what he wanted when it was his turn. And that, I mean, we don't know. No one ever asked his sister what she, she might've said, God, leave me alone. I, I want some space. And that taught me, even though he was so loving and meant well, it made me think about we often love in the way we'd like to be loved, which is natural enough. But then it's incumbent on us to stop and say, what do you need? What do you want? What can I give you beyond what I would like if I were in your situation? So I think these become constant practices of asking these questions. Well, let's bring up right into this. Um, you use the phrase choice points or the idea of choice points a lot. What do you mean by choice points and, and, um, and how does it fit in with this book? Yeah, so thank you. So, you know, one of the things that I think is a miseducation in the modern world is, you know, we, we can't give clear cut this is what you do in this situation this is what you do in that situation it's a b c or d and though we'd like to have very clear instructions at least for me that's not how life has unfolded life has unfolded as a constant practice how do we find and stay in the corridor of aliveness where we are most alive and most true and most loving and in order to do that, one thing is we, we can't, we, we drift as human beings. So this brings up the notion of course correction. So to be a spirit in a body and time on earth means we always have to return to that corridor of aliveness. We always have to find our way back a little to the, oh, today I gave myself away too much. Today I was too closed off. Oh, let's steer our way back. And so that opens up the notion that the skills of living often present themselves, most often, as choice points. How do we discern between, and some of the choice points I raise in this book, uh, between surviving and thriving? Everyone who's ever lived has to be able to both survive and thrive. If all we do is survive without thriving, what's the point? And if all we say, well, you know, I don't want to be bothered with all this, all these things in the surface world. I just want to thrive. Well, we could be having this conversation while crossing a street and get hit by a truck. So you have to tend both. So we have these choice points. You know, we also have choice points between giving and receiving. Uh, we have choice points by uh, between tending ourselves and tending others. And, and I, I like, you know, one of the choice points that I raise in the book, which 
actually comes from Beethoven. Um, the work of Beethoven is tuning as you go. You know, we 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 suffer in our modern world the the want or the training or the or taught the need to try to approach perfection. Well, that's just deadly. <laughs> it's just deadly uh, because it doesn't work. Um, and being alive, we're asked to be thorough, not perfect. So Beethoven, in his work, one of the wonderful things in his work, he he wrote a he was so innovative as well as just brilliant, and he wrote an orchestral piece for for chamber music, uh, that was known as the Last Quartet, Opus One Thirty One. Now, chamber music the, these quartets, um, you know, for 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 string instruments, but they would always traditionally up to that point have four movements. Well, Beethoven wrote Opus 131 with seven movements. And the musicians of the time, they had a love-hate relationship. They were like, is he nuts? How can we? And then they say, gee, I wonder if we can do it. So seven movements, not four. And in, in these, these uh, pieces, there are rest stops traditionally. And professionals, especially string musicians, are very talented or skilled at taking those rest stops and quickly retuning their instruments because you can't play four movements without your strings going out of tune. Well, seven movements in Opus 131, no rest stops, not one. And so he was saying, no, 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 you're not going to play perfect. You're going to have to tune as you go because that's how life is. And falling down and getting up is, in some ways, the never-ending art of tuning as you go. So give up being perfect. We can discuss it. We have to look at this together so we can learn. And then we're thrown back out into life. And, oh, you know, so, you, you know, it, it doesn't matter if I cough I love you or sing it in perfect pitch. You just want to hear it. Right. There's a number of people commenting about um, with things related to death and with grief. So I feel like this book really speaks a lot to that. Um, you know, coming, coming to terms with our own death or the death of others, grieving. Um, what, what would you say in terms of falling down and getting up with death and grief? Yeah. And, and, you know, this is such a, a, a deep, wonderful, important thing. Uh, you know, in, in our society, we tend to uh, avoid talking about these eternal things, such as, such as being born, especially dying. And so when, well, often when we do, uh, you know, we were accused of being a downer or why do you have to bring that stuff up? Well, everyone lives it. It's not being a downer when you bring it out in the open. It's actually healthful. It's actually growthful to not hide it, but to share it and learn about, about this together. And so, you know, pain and fear, uh, these are things that we can right size, things that we can hold with each other. And grief is a whole nother thing. Because grief, when we, 
when we lose especially someone and grief is not limited to the death of a person it can be the death of a dream a marriage an identity a purpose um it, it can bring so many uh, you know loss of an opportunity you know um and so grief is when we lose something that's dear to us the world as we know it is blown up and so there's an immediate paradox that's offered to us because just when i'm 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 grieving and i don't want to i don't feel like i can bear to go out in the world again we're forced to remap the world because the maps we've had no longer exist because the terrain has been blown up and we are paradoxically forced back into life to make new maps because the old ones dear as they were are gone they're useless they're, they're not accurate anymore and so how do we help each other move through grief except and i think that brings up the other fundamental uh truth about grief is that i don't know that we ever get over grief we may get under it and i think that it changes like you know like if you were to drop a cup of iodine in a lake it would tint the whole lake and when we experience grief our entire lens of life is tinted so it redefines joy. It redefines everything is recalibrated as we move forward. And obviously, as there is no timetable for grief. Um, and you know, often when people and I've experienced this, you know, personally and and in losses that my wife Susan and I have been through. Um, where certain people in our lives were, gee, oh, I, I know, I feel bad for you, but can't we get back to normal? Can't we get on with it? Well, no. <laughs> no, we can, we can incorporate the grief. And when people keep company through real compassion, it actually brings us closer. But if we deny that this is happening, uh, we, we we really can't continue those relationships so this opens up obviously a whole world and and when we talk for a moment about about death um it's so important to have i feel an ongoing conversation with death throughout our life because death becomes uh the advisor that points to us how precious life is and you know like when you have a hose uh, a garden hose and if it's kinked when you finally when you open it there's a lot of pressure but if you unkink it and open it it flows and so when we don't talk about these things then when we finally look at them they have enormous pressure and we go, oh, if it's going to be like that, I don't want any part of that. But if we actually unopen it and stay in conversation with it and each other, it it finds a more natural place in our life. And and you know, this would be a good place to mention, you know, Joel, you and I've been discussing one of the books that I'm 
working on it probably you know we'll, we'll, won't be ready for a year or two but it is a book on the second half of life and on aging um and our conversation with both life and death as i am you know because i'm now in the continent of aging i'm 72 which when i met someone my age when i was younger i thought they were ancient it doesn't seem so old now <laughs> Well, I, staying with this, kind of in this space, I mean, you know, this is not a book about grief, about death, but it really is a book that I think speaks to those experiences. But in that same vein, somebody says, Mark, your insights and soulfulness, this is uh, Arena, your insights and soulfulness are beautifully profound. I'm struggling with accepting my limitations after maintenance cancer treatments and living a life, including raising kids. Oh, well, first off, my heart goes out to you for and bless you. Uh, uh, those are such real struggles and uh, and it's very difficult. And I, you know, one of the things that my own cancer journey led me into and is the paradox of limitation. The paradox of limitation that you know, often are, and it's not, again, to minimize the limitation. It's not to skip over it or reframe it or, or say, oh, well, th this leads to a good thing. You know, sometimes we're broken open and sometimes we just break. But in I'm life, sure I in life, um, I will break open one day and you will break and then I can help you because Next week, it'll switch and I'll just break and you'll be broken open. And this is how we work through life together. But, you know, the paradox of limitation is that we are forced to accept our limits, which is real. And that's also a grief. And like the barn burning down and seeing the moon more completely, often what is opened in us presents a new way forward that we didn't imagine and we may not even know the language of it quite yet but i have learned that what is opened in us is more important than what opens us all the time you know i'll just give one ex one example um about the paradox of limitation and this was the musician django reinhardt now, Django Reinhardt, some of you may have heard of him, uh, in the early 1900s, he was a Mozart on the banjo. This guy, at like 10 years old, was playing virtuoso on the banjo. And he, his growing up, he grew up in a gypsy caravan that moved around Europe and was located outside of Paris, was their home base. And they literally lived off of the donations because they would put this little boy out there who could play the banjo and people would contribute money in a hat and that would help the caravan live. And so what happened was when he was around 17, there was an enormous fire, almost destroyed the entire caravan and he was badly burned. He almost lost a leg. He was in the hospital for 18 months and these two fingers on his left hand, the middle, the ring and the middle finger were frozen because of the burns. And he could no longer play the banjo. 
And when he woke up from one of his surgeries, at the foot of his bed was a guitar left by his brother. Because his brother was saying to him subtly and gently, you may not be able to play the banjo anymore, but I think you could teach yourself how to play the guitar. And so he mourned not being able to play his God-given instrument. But then he went on to teach himself how to play the guitar. And as at that time, when you would play guitar chords, you would play up and down the neck of the guitar. Well, he couldn't do that because these fingers were frozen. And he started to discover and create cording that went across the neck of the guitar. And Django Reinhardt is the father of all modern jazz cording. Every jazz guitarist looks to Django Reinhardt as the one of the fathers of jazz. Wow. The loss was real, and so was the discovery. Right, so that limitation actually brought opened up, it burned down the, the barn. Yes, and again, that's not to minimize the difficulty of the loss. But then how do we find how, you know, discovering what the loss opens is another way of getting up after falling down. Right. Well, I mean, to be honest, the barn is, you'd rather have the barn because you're safe, you're warm, you know, you've got shelter. Nobody wants the barn to, to burn down. But it, I, I love how you bring that into the, the larger issues. You know, one of my favorite chapters, there are 56 short chapters in this book, everyone. It's a, it's a lot of book and it's so beautiful. And you can actually, I, I was thinking about this, you can actually open it anywhere and read any chapter on its own. And I thought it'd be one of those books where you kind of ask a question, you know, life, what do I need to know right now about such and such and open it. But, but you also build you know, on each chapter as well, for those of us like myself who like to, to be more chronological. One of my favorite chapters in this book is the one called No One Is Watching. And, uh, and it also elicited a lot of discussion in, in my group. Can you just talk about what you mean by that idea of no one is watching? Yeah. So, you know, often, and, and this isn't like, I don't think this is intentional all the time but every generation and every culture has some form of social control uh some form and it often elicits this illusion that someone's watching someone's going to judge us someone's going to approve or reject us and just think right santa be good santa's watching santa's watching he knows and, and, you know, and the truth is, so it's an indirect kind of moral uh, custodian. <laughs> and the truth is, you know, uh, when I was in the hospital uh, with, with cancer after one of my surgeries, and I awoke one day and I wasn't in a room, I didn't have a private room, I was in a, a foursome. And I awoke in my other wounded fellow uh, travelers were all asleep and I woke up and for the first time in my life I realized no one is watching 
No, there's not. There's no nobo daddy out there. There's not whether you call it God or you call it something else or whatever you want. There's no, and that doesn't mean we're alone. That means that I am free to be in true relationship with the lives around me, with life itself around me, and not distracted by this silhouette that someone's watching, someone's judging. And so, you know, this is profound as we move forward uh, in our lives because part of our path of individuation is listening to the voice of our own soul. So one of the journal questions, as you know in there, Joel, that I invite, I have questions at the end of every chapter because I'm committed. This is where my teaching life and my writing life are, are always intertwined because I feel it's so important to take that extra invitation to see where these things live in your life. And that's what the questions are there to open. So the journal question for this is, what's the largest voice in your mind that's not your own? Where did it come from? How does it have influence over you? How can you move it out of the way so that you can hear your own voice? And that also opens up the question, especially for those of us who are parents or teachers, formerly or informally, or aunts and uncles. What kind of voice are you in someone else's head? How are you influencing someone in a way you may not intend? How do we invite the soul of those around us to show themselves, to find their own instruction? Yeah. We could talk another hour just about that. I <laughs> um, but I'm watching the time. We've got about 14, 15 minutes, and I want to get to more things. So uh, we'll just keep going. I did want to uh, talk to you uh, about the questions at the end uh, of each chapter because you talk you call them questions to walk with and you invite people to to use a journal and answer the questions I also think that the way that you phrase it questions to walk with if you take that question and go for a walk with the question literally go for a walk how you might come back with some sort of new way of thinking or an answer or or something like that Absolutely. And, and I do intend that, you know, I intend, and this is in a tradition of, of true education and teaching and learning. And this goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, you know, Aristotle had what he called the peripatetic school, which simply meant walking. That's what they did. Not because they did that because they didn't have any place to hang out. Uh, Aristotle didn't own any <laughs> property so they just walked around the the uh colonnade around the the lyceum in ancient greece they said well this is a public space hopefully they won't kick us out and he, he and his students would walk and talk and if we go back to plato and this is very important i feel in in the foundation of the kind of learning where we're exploring here together today in today, I mean, in the world, in our world today, in, in a deep way, you know, Plato, he, his school was called the Academy. 
Now, he also didn't have a, a, a building to call a school. He, he walked around with students or colleagues, friends, who, and they just did like this. They explored questions about living. What's it mean to be here? Is this all there is? But when he was in his 30s, he had an uncle who died who left him an olive grove. And the word academy in ancient Greek language means the sacred grove. Mm. So when we go forward to today, that word has eroded into academic. But true education is where we walk with questions in the sacred grove within us and between us. So yes, if the, anything we're talking about moves you or if you get the book and something touches you, take a walk with it. Call up a friend, a loved one, and bring it to them and say, hey, you know, this is stirring something in me. What do you think? Right. And and the journaling part, you know, I'm an artist way person and do it in my life, the morning pages every day and lead artist way groups. So I love also the journaling part because it gets it out of us what needs to come out, but also it's wisdom on the page as well, which leads me to um, a question that I had and I saw somebody else actually had a similar question, which is, Mark, what is your writing process? Do you write daily? Where do you write? Um, yeah. And how do you decide what to write? Yeah. So uh, right here, this is my study <laughs> and at home and it's on the second floor of our home. I have a window out here. Um, and so this is my perch. But, you know, I, I do walk with questions. And so but I all my my practice is that every day I'm I'm up early. Uh, so I'm up here. Uh, our dog is, is with my wife now, but uh, she's usually in here with me. And I start the morning. I'm usually up here by 7.30 in the morning and spend a good few hours here um, feeling, thinking, listening. Um, and then I will consciously, uh, after Susan and I connect, my wife's a potter, so she has her pottery studio uh, in a, a building on our property not too far from the house. Um, and then our dog Zuzu goes with her. She's a studio pal. She's a study pal in the morning and a studio pal in the afternoon. And then I consciously try to go out in the world, do some errands in the afternoon. But I, I keep, I walk with the questions while, and then if I have time, I'll stop in a cafe somewhere for a little bit before winding up here. And in the evening, we just hang out and neither of us really you know are in our places creative places unless something is a deadline or something but i i would say that you know my almost dying in my 30s changed everything about what i look quote look for to write because i was taught like many writers and artists to look for good material well if there was a gift in still being here after almost dying, it was that I was given the lens of the miraculous. That is, if I'm open-hearted and present enough, I see the extraordinary in the ordinary. And so I don't need to look for good material. Everything is good material if I'm present enough and open-hearted enough to receive it. 
And so that's changed, you know, for many, many years now, decades now, that I feel like I'm an inner explorer. And so I go out with my heart as a Geiger counter and something registers. There's a metaphor, there's a question, there's a pain, there's a struggle, there's something that I can't look away from as I go through the cafe or out in nature. And then I'm in conversation with it. And so I gather, quote, fragments or passages or things that I need to be with more. And I just save them till I can spend more time with them and they become my teachers. And then instead of, you know, I mean, I have, as you and I, you know, Joel, we talk and we explore these. I have ideas, <laughs> books, but they're just kindling for when it comes alive. They're just a doorway in. And then as I'm with these things enough, they start to aggregate organic. Oh, this is a theme. Oh, this is actually a chapter. Oh, this is like, oh, there's something here about no one is watching. That's worth more attention and it becomes a chapter. And so they organically link until a book presents itself. And, you know, I humbly say that of all the books that I've been blessed to bring into being, not one book is the book I started. <laughs> because they, they come alive. Yeah. And this is one of the hardest things to teach young writers is not to feel that when a book veers from your aim, it's a failure. It's actually saying, let's go. Right, exactly. And I can attest, by the way, that you have hundreds of kindlings of <laughs> ideas. And one of the fun parts for me, I'm, I'm a lucky person, is I get to sit with you. And uh, we usually sit for two or three hours when, uh, and just we just talk about things. And you'll take this kindling here, and then we'll talk about something, and you'll add this kindling from this one over here and this one. And now it's suddenly something different, but contains those different ideas. And uh, it's fun. Creative partnerships are, are fun. And you when you find people that uh, bring, you know, energy to each other. That's when magic is. Um, a couple quick things before, because we're, we're getting close and I want to end on a very specific question. But before I do that, I wondered if you might, um, you have a lot of beautiful poetry that you wrote in this book. And I wondered if you might read something. Um, you know, I, of course, love the, the poem that's in No One Is Watching, which is page 17, or there's also the uh, the one I wrote down, um, which is Anthem. Yeah. Uh, which is, what, what page is Anthem on? That's um, It's on Roman numeral 21. Okay, 21. Yeah, let me, let me share that one. Thank you for asking for that. Yes. Anthem. Yes, you fell down. I feel for you, for I have fallen many times. Now you must get up. I know it isn't easy. I know it will take time. 
Remember, the seed can't imagine breaking ground, and the fledgling can't imagine flying. And so your broken heart can't imagine finding its way. But life is this repeating journey from sleep to wakefulness, from blindness to sight, from fear to love. No matter how many times we fall, we are just beginning. That's beautiful. That frames this book, by the way, so beautifully uh, as somebody's read it. Just two other things. One, just quickly to remind people that they can go to marknepo.com because you're going to be doing retreats based on this book. Uh, you have one coming in Connecticut um, in early September in Charleston, South Carolina, in September in Washington in October, in Baja, Mexico, um, in February of next year, and, and some more even beyond that. So I just would encourage people to go to marknepo.com. Mark, by the way, for people who don't know, is one of the most organized people I know. And so even his website is incredibly organized. So you go there, you can find anything you need like that. And it's, uh, it's awesome. Mark, I just wanted to end um, this conversation with you. And thank you so much. Is you know, the whole book is, is a beautiful journey. It's a process. I think it's so helpful for people in so many different ways. And I'm not giving away the ending to talk about one of the things that you write in at the end of the book. Um, in fact, I think it in, when I read it, it inspired me to go back to the start and begin again. But you write about a photograph that you saw um, at Holland yeah. House in London. And I just, um, I just thought if you would just end this, maybe I'll hold the photograph up to the camera. And, sure. And you talk about the metaphor of what that is and, the, and how that ties into the book. And for those of you who, um, well, nobody has the book because it's not on sale quite yet. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That, that, a little, that's it, that right there is good. A little, yeah, that's perfect, Joel. So this is a photograph was so powerful that in World War II in London, during the bombing of London, there was Holland House had been in earlier times the estate of a, of a lord, but it had been turned into a public building and it had a huge library. And during the bombing in 1940, it suffered like 22 bombs in one day and the entire building was destroyed but miraculously, the, only the walls with the books stayed standing. And the next day when the smoke cleared, people, bystanders and strangers wandered in and started when the light came in of the sun on the standing books in the midst of the rubble. They started taking books off and reading them and looking at what was there, what was left. And this was such a power, and someone obviously was there, captured that moment on, as a photograph. And to me, it is a metaphor for the entire book and for fall. I mean, it's almost, you could say it's a metaphor for the human heart. Because by living, yes, we suffer bombs, things tumble, things fall down. And somehow, miraculously, once the smoke clears, there we are. Oh, the light comes on, the wisdom is still standing. Oh, I guess I'll pull this book down and see how to rebuild and where to go next and what 
what's what's surviving all this and and so it's just such a powerful one of those powerful lessons just from life itself you say on page 359 what matters can never be destroyed only rearranged this is the secret to falling down and getting up oh that's beautiful thank you joel thank you beautiful poet and teacher and uh, storyteller and all the strengths of each of those three things uh, are really evident in this book and, and um, I love the book a lot I'm so proud to have been part of it and I, I just um, am so excited for people to read it and um, I'm so grateful we had this time for, with this conversation thank thank you Joel thanks everyone for taking the time to be with us and and thanks Jacob for Banyan books hosting us Banyan books, the best. They're amazing. Thank you. And I'd like to thank both of you on behalf of Banyan as well. Um, I knew uh, I'd have to be taking my glasses off because the, the tears would uh, get them all, uh, which I constantly had to do uh, whenever I hear you speak. Um, and um, yeah, it's just a, such a powerful conversation. And uh, I want to remind everybody you can you can purchase the book soon at, uh, or you can pre-order it too from, from Banyan at banyan.com, Falling Down and Getting Up. And you can find Mark Nepo at marknepo.com. You can follow, find Joel Fotinos at joelfotinos.com. And uh, so we shall uh, continue on as the spiritual caterpillars that we are. <laughs> um, thank you both so much. And thank you everyone for coming in your questions. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.